Um, let's pray right now, and then we're going to jump in to um, the Beatitudes, um, and then we'll be done for the day. We have a few things to do before then. Father, God, I thank you for the opportunity to be here in this place with our friends, uh, to study your word, to learn, to grow. I pray you would speak to us. Show us how we can adjust the way we see the world so that we can be in line with you. And Father, just, just open up your word to be real and impactful and meaningful for our lives today. Be with all those who are sick. I pray you would make them well. And thank you for all that have been sick and are now well. Especially, uh, Father, we pray for those who are in helping professions, uh, in medical fields, who are just tired and working hard. Uh, be with them. Give them endurance and peace as they deal with these difficult times. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Sermon on the Mount. The reason we're doing Sermon on the Mount is because Jesus literally came onto the scene saying things like, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you something else. Uh, Scott opened up Sermon on the Mount last week talking about the yoke of Jesus. And when we read that Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was not talking about some way of hooking ourselves to him, and then he's going to pull us where he wants us to go. The yoke of a rabbi, and Jesus was a rabbi in his time, were his teachings. And so different rabbis would have different yokes. They would take the law, and they would teach the law. And you can go back and listen to what Scott talked about as far as uh, just the expectation in that culture at that time to learn the law as a kid. And as you progress in your learning of the Torah and the, your learning of the prophets and all of the, the pieces of Scripture that make up the Old Testament, uh, you would begin to kind of develop your own interpretations. Uh, this is what we still do today. This is why two people who love Jesus can preach the same text and come up with different ways of applying or different ways of understanding. And so over the years, rabbis would take on the Scriptures would apply their own interpretations, and they would teach those to their followers who, if you followed along that path long enough, you yourself could become a rabbi. But Jesus came on the scene saying, so many of you have learned the yoke of your teacher and it has become burdensome because they have taken this word and they have interpreted it incorrectly. And so I'm going to show you that the, the true yoke of what God wants you to know through his word is, is not burdensome. It leads to freedom, it leads to life, it leads to hope. And that's why Jesus would say things like, you've heard it said. So this rabbi over here is telling you this, but he's wrong. This is really what it's all about. And this is why Jesus would end so much of his teaching by saying, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Like if you really want to know the truth, I'm, I'm telling you this truth that has been corrupted over the ages. And here we are 2,000 years removed from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and we still have to go through a period of trying to ascertain, have, has what I've learned about God and his word really true? Or has someone used it for their own benefit, and I've begun to believe things that aren't true? It's why we have so many conflicted people in the church that's so why we have some people that, you know, you go on Facebook and you have those friends and they post something about how they love Jesus and they're so glad he saved them and he's so good and wonderful and they want all their friends to know him. And the next post is, is an expletive-ridden 
uh, rant about how some people ought to die because they're horrible people. How does the same person post those two things on the same Facebook feed? And it's because we haven't fully understood the teachings of Jesus. Now, it's been said about, and I believe that it is true, that the Sermon on the Mount is the yoke of Jesus. Certainly his whole life is the yoke of Jesus. And certainly Jesus would say, all of Scripture is my yoke, because he was very clear that we don't take one Scripture and ignore the others. Understand, you in a post-resurrection, post-apostle time period, when Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the Scriptures, he was talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament was not written yet. That does not mean we don't listen to the New Testament But what Jesus was saying was, understand how God has been working from the very beginning, and I'm showing you how that's all going to work itself out until there's a new earth and a new heaven that's eventually coming. So we dive into the Sermon on the Mount, understanding those things. And the reason I wanted to do this, this yoke of Jesus is I wanted us to just go to the source. He does a lot of correction of erroneous beliefs and, and some things that we ourselves need to take on. And we not the erroneous beliefs, but we need to take on this mentality of seeking the truth. The way we pursue truth matters. We live in a culture in which the predominant, the predominant message around truth is this. Find your truth, live out your truth. And don't feel like you need to be burdened with someone else's truth. One of my very favorite TV shows that um, has ever been on, and it's not on any longer, um, was Mythbusters. Does anybody else love to watch Mythbusters? Like, if I could do anything else, I would make stuff. So my two very favorite shows of all time are How It's Made and Mythbusters. Now, no one in my family likes How It's Made. Like, how do you make a spring? Like, everybody else has turned the channel, and I'm like, this is fascinating. I wonder, how, I wonder if I could do that. I love to learn how to make things, but one of the hosts, Adam Savage, he had this quote, and they opened every show with it, and he said this. He said, I reject your truth, and I substitute my own, which I just loved about Adam Savage. Because Adam and Jamie, the two co-hosts, they would, they would come up with some, something that needed to be solved, and then they would compete with, uh, I think this is how we solve it. Well, I think this is how we solve it. Well, let's both do our ways, and we'll see which one works. And so I'm... Most of the time, Jamie would win, right? Most of the time, Adam was kind of comic relief. But every now and then, he would win. But I would love these, that, that comment, I reject your truth and I substitute my own. The problem with this mentality is that it is embraced by our entire culture. And at some point, we have to come to the conclusion, is there an absolute truth today? Is there real truth or do we believe what culture and postmodernism says? Or, or we're not even in postmodernism. We're in post, a post-Christian culture. Do we believe that there's absolute truth? Or do we believe that truth is completely subjective to the person who is searching it? The problem with that mentality and the reason that, that the pursuit of my life is the pursuit of what is true, no matter whether people like it or not, is because you can't have two people in a healthy relationship that choose to pursue two different truths. So you can imagine in a marriage if a husband and a wife decide, my truth is different than your truth. My truth is I'm going to be committed to you. I'm going to love you. I'm not going to pursue anyone other than you. I'm going to spend my life invested in you, and that's my truth. 
And let's say you're married to someone who says, you know, my truth is that I should go out and get every experience I can and be with as many people as I want. And I just believe that this is the way people are supposed to live their life. They're not supposed to be committed to one person. You put those two people that are absolutely committed to their truth in a relationship, and that relationship falls apart. At some level, whether it's your marriage or whether it's how you're raising your kids, you know, moms and dads, if you are in disagreement with your spouse about how to raise your kids and what principles they should learn as absolute truth, and you give them competing truths, your kids are going to be a mess. I mean, they're going to be a mess anyways, because, you know, let's be honest, we're messes. But but you're go- they're going to be even more of a mess. Or if you go to work, and at work, let's say you're in a work group, and your truth is this, I am here to love life. I have to work to eat. I'm going to do the very least I can get by with to get my paycheck so I can get on to the things I want to do. Let's say you work with that person, but your truth is a person ought to do their very best and help others so that everyone can succeed. And so you're willing to stay late or show up early. And yet you're in a work group with somebody that has chosen a different truth about life and work. You're going to be in conflict with each other. At some point, especially in faith, we have to have some level of foundational truth to say this is what is real and this is what is not. And most people are going to live their lives following exactly what Adam Savage or the rest of culture, and I don't know that Adam says this about everything, but it's just funny in Mythbusters. I don't want to you know, paint him as the devil or anything because I, I love to watch him. But this is what happens when we cannot agree on what is truth. And so where do we go to find that truth? And historically for the church, we have gone to God's Word. But what Jesus teaches us through the Sermon on the Mount is that it's not just about God's Word. It's a correct understanding of what God's been doing along the way, which is more difficult for us because we live in a very different world. So one of the questions that we're going to be dealing with is, is how do we live healthy lives if the truths we build our lives around are uniquely suited to us and not the people that we do life with? Can we, can we develop a worldview that involves others, even if we disagree about truth, but more importantly, can we find that place of truth? Throughout our history, we have absolutely known that things were true until there's something new that shows us it wasn't true, Right? There was a time that we absolutely knew that the earth was the center of the universe. And everything revolved around the earth because the earth was the center of all things because that's the way humans work. We believe we're the center of all things. I mean, that's the way we are. And so there was a time that we believed the the earth was the center of the universe. And... Over a period of time, people began to watch the stars more frequently and began to realize, I really don't think that's how this works. I don't think that's how seasons work. I don't think that's how the rotation of the world works. I don't think that's how this works. And and someone that you're probably studied at some point by the name of Galileo said, no, this is not true. And he was imprisoned for the rest of his life for saying that the earth revolved around the sun. And you know who imprisoned him? Christians. (laughs) Because we were not about to give up on this truth that we just knew was true. 
And there's so many things like that. You know, the flat earth theory and all kinds of other things we knew was true until there's new information. So is it possible that us, all of us, myself included, absolutely know things are true because we haven't yet gotten all the information that is going to show us, well, maybe something else is actually true instead. If you go to just about any research site about people and where they are in faith, we find this rise of the nuns. I just don't believe any of this Christianity stuff anymore. This this idea of deconstruction. I wrote a blog this week. I don't know if anybody read it. I wrote a blog this week that went out in our email blast that just asked the question, is deconstruction a bad word? And I have of the opinion that deconstruction is not, is, it, it's, it's not only is it not a bad word, it's a necessary way of living life. Jesus is teaching when he had said things like, you have heard it said, but I tell you, he's trying to deconstruct false understandings about God. And I have found that in my own life, when I hold too closely to something, then it means when something really true comes along, I ignore it because I've held closely to something else. So we have to have as the church some place to go back and say, what is our foundational understanding? And it seems to me that the very best person to do that for us is Jesus, right? And that's why we come to the Sermon on the Mount. So understand that this is going to take us months to get through. Um, if you're thinking, well, gosh, that's a long time to talk about the same thing. The wonderful thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that he jumps from topic to topic, but he's, he's sharing a thread through it all. So we're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about families. We're going to talk about work. We're going to talk about um, how do we deal with poverty. We're going to talk about all kinds of things throughout this sermon because that's what Jesus talks about. Now, we begin with the Beatitudes, And I'll just let you know right now, we are not going to dive deeply into the Beatitudes. I'm going to cover three of them today. Um, We're going to cover one of them next week, three of them the following, and one the last, and that's it. We spent 10 weeks on the Beatitudes about a year and a half ago. So if you'd like to really dive into those, then you can go online and you can um, watch all of those. We did a series, each week we did a different Beatitude. That's not our goal for this one. We want to move on through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount But the Beatitudes are important because the Beatitudes are Jesus literally saying, I'm going to have to deconstruct your understanding of God so that you can then begin to take on a correct understanding of what this is really all about. And so he begins with these statements of, this is what the world thinks is failure, but I'm telling you this is what is blessed. (laughs) This is what the world wants to avoid, but I'm telling you these are the people that are going to get it. The world looks at these characteristics of people and they think I would never want to do that why would I follow anyone that says that's a good thing but yet these are the people that are going to inherit the world so he's deconstructing a lot of the things that they understand and the ways that they understand them Matthew chapter 5 6 and 7 is the sermon on the mount and so we're going to just look at the first five verses today of Matthew chapter 5 um, as an introduction and a reminder Jesus's fame is growing people are coming to him they want to be rescued from Rome They want to have their own nation again. They want to be powerful. They want to be the superpower of all things. And they're hoping and wondering, is Jesus the one that's going to lead them? Is he their general? Uh, Is he their new David? Is (coughs) Is he going to come in? Is he going to overthrow the Romans and then make Israel finally the one superpower of the world under God's power? 
And so as all of these people are coming, asking these questions about Jesus, it says in verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Usually people want to avoid all three of those things. They don't want to be poor in anything. They don't want to be poor in spirit, certainly not poor in pocket. They don't want to be mourning. I don't want to be losing stuff. And, you know, I also don't want to be meek. I want to be strong. So he begins right out the off the bat saying, and his very first announcement to this group of people coming looking for a strong leader to lead them to be a strong nation, saying, it is in the very things that you find untasteful that the greatest blessing in life comes. And he does this over and over and over again throughout his teachings. When he would draw a crowd, he would say something to say, you really don't want this thing that I'm talking about, but you should. But I'm going to tell you about it, and for those of you who want to listen, the kingdom of God is yours. But for those of you who want to twist this into something else, you've missed the point altogether. So these are the three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The very first three of the Beatitudes. Now we get the word Beatitudes from the Latin beati, beate, beati. I'm not exactly sure how you say that in the Latin. I'm not a Latin expert and no one even speaks it anymore. But it literally means blessed are. Blessed are. If we go through and look at the biblical understanding of blessed, you'll find there's two primary understandings of the word blessed. It means to be unbelievably happy. That's that idea of hashtag blessed. Uh, when something goes well, a check shows up in the mail. Uh, you know, the thing you've been saving up for all of a sudden is half off something. I'm happy. Things are good. Or you find someone, you know, that you, you, you've reconnected with an old friend or whatever. It's, I'm happy. I'm just really happy. The second is to be made holy or to be made consecrated. Now, to be consecrated means to be sacred. And to be sacred means to be dedicated to God. And so if we understand what Jesus is saying to be blessed, he's not just saying everything works out perfectly for you which is the way most people understand blessing in the church today. Blessed means you don't get sick. Blessed means you have plenty of money. Blessed means you have lots of friends. Blessed means no, nothing bad happens to you. But we can't follow anyone who actually follows Jesus in the Bible and find that those things are true about any of them because they have all kinds of terrible things that happen in their lives, and yet they consider themselves blessed. So if we pull all that together to understand what's Jesus saying about being blessed, Blessed means to be made unbelievably happy by being dedicated to God. Now, someone who has no experience with God looks at that and says, that doesn't sound like something that would make someone happy. I mean, I'm dedicated to myself. That makes me happy. That's the pursuit of happiness that most people are after. What he's saying is not just you're dedicated to someone other than yourself. What he's saying is you are dedicated to experience the thing God always intended from the beginning. And we've spent several weeks talking about that. We've talked about kingdom building. We've talked about um, the original kingdom of heaven intersecting the kingdom of earth in the Garden of Eden, how we've lost that, how these kingdoms keep 
overlapping in our experience. They overlap through the tabernacle. They overlap through the temple. They overlap through the life of Jesus. They overlap through the Holy Spirit living in followers today. There's this supernatural spiritual reality going on behind the scenes that brings a great amount of comfort and peace even in a world that is broken and harsh. And what he's saying is when you are not just committed to God, which generally is interpreted as I'm committed to doing all the right things, instead what Jesus is saying is blessed, unbelievably happy are those people who committed to living out the reality in which they were created to live, which is with God and with others, which as Jesus described, what is the point of all of Scripture? To love God. And to love others. This, this community that begins to be built among people that we want for each other, not just for ourselves. That we love each other, not just try to get other people to love us. That if someone's in need and I have extra, you're no longer in need. Because now we both have what we need. This beautiful relationship of humanity with each other and with God that it doesn't take anything other than looking out the window to recognize That is really hard to come by today. Blessed, unbelievably happy are the people that have committed to experience the things God created us to experience. With these three traits, he begins first with poor in spirit. Again, we're not going to go deeply into these. But Jesus was always concerned with those who were considered less than. He was always considered with with the sick and the oppressed, with those who didn't have any kind of power or physical standing in the world. That's who he would go to. In fact, it was prophesied that's what Jesus would do. And in Luke 4, that's what Jesus says about himself. I'm here for the oppressed, for the captive, for the blind, for the sick. He said other things like the people who are healthy and well in their own eyes, is really what he's saying, don't need a doctor. But those who are sick, they recognize they need me. So I'm here for them. But the people who think they have no need of me, It's not that he's not here for them. It's just that they don't want to have anything to do with him. Jesus is really saying the poor in spirit are those who recognize the end all is not in and of themselves. Their ability to navigate the world, their ability to navigate their life or their career or or, or finances or power or, or influence. But instead, blessed are those who recognize those things don't actually have any power in them but instead being dedicated to God does. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And what he says about them is that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we remember what we've talked about over the last few months, and really we've been, we've been somewhat on a journey back to what are our basic core beliefs about Christianity that have been, how do we uncover what was corrupted? And we began that with our series called Jesus is Essential about a year ago. And so along the way, we've been on this path to say what are some of the things that we believe that are not true how do we get back to what is the foundation of our faith not just ours at journey church as if we get to create our own but what has it been for followers of jesus since jesus because that's what we have to be pursuing otherwise we're just like the rest of the world who says we will determine what our truth is and there's plenty of churches that do that see I believe, and it is my intention, that as we move forward as a church, the days of the first 13 years of this church are over. We're we're becoming something different now. The world is not the same. 
When I was growing up, we would joke in, in seminary about churches that would split over the dumbest things. <laughs> we would talk about splitting over the color of the choir robes. Anybody ever heard or known somebody that did that? Split over the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. Split over the, the color of the hymn books in the back. Which hymn books do you use? I always thought that was so silly of, as if God really cares what color the hymn books are or the choir robes are or even cares if there are choir robes. <laughs> you know, I don't think God even cares about that. And I remember the first church I pastored, we decided it was time to get new chairs for the choir, and we were going to be ultra-modern. We were going to move away from the pews and get the choir seats. Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about, but trust me, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was a big deal. Like, we were, we were doing something for God with these seats, right? Um, you, you joke about that. That's how silly it is. It really is that silly. And we had a group of people that were going to leave if we picked a certain color of the chair. And I was just devastated. I thought, how can we, of all the things that are going on in the world that we need to address, we're fighting about the color of these seats. It just, oh my gosh, it was awful. Still today, people fight over stuff like that. They really do. We get so focused on the things that don't matter rather than the things that do. You know, we're entering into the fastest, we not entering, we've been in it for a long time, the fastest changing world that the world has ever experienced with technology. It's changing faster than it ever has. If you go through this one-year reading plan with us and you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that life was pretty much the same for hundreds, if not thousands of years. I'm, I, I'm about to turn 50. The young age of 50, which is when they say you're at your best. I don't know who says that, but I'm believing it's my truth, that that's your best when you're 50, right? I can buy into the culture just like anybody else. 50 is the new 20. Yeah, right. I'm telling you. I have somebody, it's, look it up on Google somewhere. Somebody said it. But, um, you know, we, we bought the family a couple of VR headsets this Christmas um, to have fun but also to figure out this VR thing. I'm figuring out this VR thing. Like, did you watch Mark Zuckerberg's keynote on the metaverse? Did you, anybody watch that? Anybody watch that? The primary message of Mark Zuckerberg's um, keynote was, you cannot be real in this world. You can't, it is not safe, and you will not succeed. But if you go into the metaverse, you can become whoever you want. You know, I, I, could, I could be an eight-year-old, you know, an eight-year-old in the metaverse. And depending on how I interacted, you would never know the difference, right? And the, the whole idea behind this is that you can become whoever you want to become. But that's not truth. And that's not reality. And the, the thing that, that bothers me about the idea of the metaverse, and I'm careful to make any assumptions because I don't really understand it yet, and that's where we get in trouble is when we make conclusions about things we don't really understand yet. That's why we dig and found foundational truth, and then we can respond once we are informed. We Christians don't typically wait to be until we're informed. Um, we put Galileo on house arrest for the rest of his life because he would dare say something like that the earth would revolve around the sun and not the other way around. We, we have to be informed, so I'm not sure, but I can tell you this, what's coming, what's going to be coming with the metaverse is a number of people that, that escape to the metaverse as someone else, and as their fame grows in the metaverse and they realize inwardly, this is not actually who I am, the disconnect within themselves is going to grow. Mental illness is going to grow through the metaverse because people are going to be more fractured than they ever have. 
because they can be someone else somewhere else and they know deep down inside that's not who I am. We need as the church, so we don't need to worry about the color of hymn books. We need to worry about how do we interact with this metaverse, right? And so part of understanding truth and part of understanding what's going on in the world is that we not only uncover truth, we know how to use it. We know how to apply it. And not only do we know how, we actually do that. There are churches right now holding church services in the metaverse. I'm not saying we're necessarily going to do that, but I will tell you I'm very drawn to the idea of a of a virtual place where someone who can use anonymity to ask questions they couldn't ask anywhere else have an opportunity to have a spiritual conversation. I don't know what that's going to look like, but these are the places where we need to be understanding God's Word and we need to be applying them because understand this, this metaverse is going to grow exponentially very quickly. It already is. So this is not the only issue in the world. The metaverse and the ability to have an expensive headset to do VR uh, pales in comparison to someone who doesn't have a meal, right? So there are other issues we have to address. We can't just say, hey, we're going to go play games, and hey, for the glory of God. It's not just it's not that, but it's where we, we look to see where the world is going because they're pursuing a truth that is not true because we believe we have a truth that actually leads to something that's healthy. But we have to undercover that, un- uncover that thing that is actually healthy because as we can't admit, you just have to watch the news almost on a daily, a, a daily, you know, day, daily. <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to add some other words that don't fit there. But a daily, you can find where churches are acting badly. Pastors are acting badly. Christians are acting badly. And it doesn't take but a cursory reading of Scripture to recognize, I don't think this is what the Bible says we're supposed to be about. And yet we have a lot of people screaming, I'm a Christian, that that's what they're about. So this pursuit of truth matters. This pursuit of how we live our life matters. How we spend our time and our resource matters. And we have to come back to this place where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, because they are pursuing the thing that matters, and the world looks at them and thinks they have nothing, but they realize they have everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? The poor in spirit recognize that we're powerless in and of ourselves. We're helpless to deal with the issues of the world by ourselves. And for the people that Jesus was talking to, they would never probably hold office. They would never have wealth. They would never be in a place of influence. So they never thought they could bring change at all to the world, and yet they changed the world with their lack of power, influence, or wealth. They changed the world even today. This is why one of the biggest mistakes the church is making today is using wealth to push the gospel. As if you accept Jesus, you get wealth, you get power, nothing ever goes wrong. This is the exact opposite of what Jesus would teach. And so I believe Jesus would come back today and say to many of the messages that are told in some of our fastest growing churches in the country, he would say, those who have ears to hear, let you hear. You have heard it said that you need power and influence and wealth to experience the kingdom of God. But I tell you this, it is the poor in spirit who will receive the kingdom of God. This is the gospel. He goes on and says, not only is it the poor in spirit, those who are in desperate, desperately need and want God, they are totally relying on God instead of their own 
abilities. He says, blessed are those that mourn. And the issue with mourning is this. No one likes it. See, People who mourn, they loved and they lost. People who mourn had and then they did not have. People who mourn, the thing that they could have had hoped in no longer can sustain their hope. No one wants to mourn. There are people that reject all idea of intimate relationships for the fear that they will lose that relationship. It's better not to have loved than to have loved and lost, even though we deeply know that the opposite is true. Better to have loved than lost. But there are people that will live their lives avoiding mourning at all times. And it's not just mourning over stuff or people. It's mourning over the way we've chosen to live our lives at times. So when we talk about sin, we talk about sin in the sense that it, it wrecks us. And it wrecks others. And so when we ourselves mourn, we will be comforted because God mourns too. Have you ever considered that God mourns? God mourns what's lost. God mourns the decision made in the garden. God mourns the decisions each of us make each day. God mourns those who reject Him. God mourns His Son that died on the cross. That mourning is a little weird, right? Because He came back. God mourns. And He says if you mourn, you've loved, and you've lost, and you recognize there's hope in something else. Your faith grows. Those that mourn will be comforted. People who mourn understand the heart of God that He mourns a corrupted creation, a lost people. He mourns the evil that is done in the world, the evil that people do to each other. He mourns that. And when we align our lives with Him, we mourn that too. We don't contribute to it. We mourn it. Blessed, unbelievably happy are the poor in spirit who mourn over unrighteousness and their own sin. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And then he says, blessed are the meek, and they're going to inherit the earth. This was, a, I, this was one of my favorite sermons we did on the Beatitudes series about a year ago, talking about the meek. The meek is such a play on words. The meek is not the weak. But the meek is the humble. As we went back and we did a word study of where that word meek comes from, it comes from the Greek tradition of choosing which horses would serve in the army. <laughs> And so you had different types of horses. You had some that just, I mean, they were strong, but they had their own head, and you would have to break them, and then you would strap a cart to them, and they would pull heavy loads the rest of their lives. But you had these some horses, and they were incredibly strong, but they were incredibly disciplined. And you could teach them, and they, could, they would go where you told them to go and do what you told them to do. They were considered the meek horses. It was the idea of strength under control, not just weakness. But there's a... a, a quality of that in which you don't have to get your way. There's a humility in meekness that is not inherent typically in our culture today. It's not that you're not strong. It's not that God's called us to, to just be quivering little worthless you know, blobs of whatever that just hope that maybe God will save them one day. But instead, He says, I need you to be disciplined and powerful and strong, but it needs to be under control and humble because we're, we're, we're here to take the world back. We've even corrupted this message in the sense that we say, yes, I'm taking this world back at the end of my fists or the end of a gun, the end of a sword 
or the end of the verbal spewing I can put out on someone. He says, no, 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 that's not the way we use strength. We use strength to serve. We use strength to get down on our knees and wash people's feet. Feet, that's my word, feet. And Thank you. And in all of these things, Jesus consistently is saying, what you think is true is not true at all. There's something better, but you have to accept this thing that is true. And so meekness is this idea of gentle, loving, self-sacrificing strength that sees the world differently and says they need someone. Meekness might be if you're one of the most popular people in school and you see the kid that no one will talk to, he takes his popularity, shoves it in his pocket, walks over to the kid sitting by himself, flops down and says, hey, I'm Mark. Which is kind of crazy because I was never that popular kid. But whatever that popular kid's name is, and says, Hey, I'm Mark. How are you? That's just meekness. They in no way are weak. They're in no way diminishing who they are as an individual. But yet they take this influence they have and they say, I'm here to offer something to you. See, it's self sacrificing. Meekness is beautiful. It's something that he says, Blessed are the meek because they're going to inherit the earth, which is really a foreshadowing of when Jesus is going to return, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. This new earth, that's the kind of place you people are going to live in. This great, beautiful place. Meek are going to inherit that. Not the people who come in crushing others with their words or their authority, but they come in and serve and give and sacrifice for. 2 Corinthians 12.8 says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. This is Paul talking about his struggles. This, this thorn in the flesh. Three times I, I, I pled he would take away these struggles that I have. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. What does it look like when we are so after the pursuit of power, whether it be political or financial or whatever? But how, how, how is it that in our pursuit of that power, we actually have become powerless and have this facade of the idea that we have? Christianity changed the world when Christians were being fed to lions in an arena and they did not hold public office. What we see as Christians have sought worldly power, we have seen the diminishment of the gospel in our community. It is not that Christians shouldn't hold public office in any way. They absolutely should. But we understand that's a means to an end. That is not the pursuit of power that God has called us. This is why people should reject God. They should reject God because they reject the idea that meekness is more valuable than power. Not reject God because we just act badly. The meek trust the Lord. They commit their way to the Lord and they patiently wait for the Lord. I share this with you and there's so much more for each of these we could go into detail. And I do encourage you to go watch those. I can't remember the name of the series. I think it's something that was like uh, In Uncertain Times was the name of the series. Um, and it was like fall of 2020, I think is when we did it. I encourage you to go and listen to those when you have some time in the car or wherever. But I say all this and the rest of the Beatitudes as we go through them are going to teach us that Jesus' teachings are upside down and we cannot casually absorb them. We only absorb them when we're intentional about them, when we wrestle with them. One of the things that I want us to do as we go through this reading plan is to wrestle and to struggle and to say, I'm not sure about that. 
Because until you come to the moment where you say, I'm not sure about that, you haven't honestly come to the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures will change us, they'll challenge us. I say this hesitantly because I certainly don't read the Bible every day, but I will say this, I don't know anyone who's growing in their faith that is not an avid student of Scripture. You may absorb what others say, which is why so many Christians know a few verses and know these colloquial statements and phrases, but they don't know what they mean and they rarely apply them. The person who loves Jesus loves His Word. We struggle. I was talking to some friends about... I'm so weird. I've just I've learned I don't have a mass appeal to people. I mean, I'm just yeah. I don't, a lot of people don't like me, right? And you're probably sitting there going, "Yeah, we can tell why." You know, we see you every Sunday, and we're not sure why we're here, right? But uh, I I've learned in my life that I'm a thread puller, and I think all Christians should be thread pullers. You know, what a thread puller is like your moms are like, "Oh, thread pulling is awful. Never pull a thread. Never pull a thread." Right? Ruins the sweater. But I found that when you pull a thread, the world opens up. When you stop submitting yourself because someone told you you're supposed to believe something, instead you search for truth yourself, the world opens up. There's so much of the supernatural, and it's just scary, and there's so much of the supernatural in which we say, that's just so crazy. People think we're crazy if we believe that stuff, and yet when you believe it, the world makes more sense a thread puller, and I want you to be a thread puller. So I want you to read something and go, yeah, God, you're wrong on that. I have no problem with that, nor does God, because it is in that struggle that we we come up to Him and we say, okay, then if this is real, then you're going to have to show me where I'm wrong. But that takes an immense amount of courage and meekness and poor, being poor in spirit to be able to say, if I'm wrong, show me where I'm wrong, and I'll admit it. And we have to be willing to admit we're wrong. Christians aren't good at that. We should be. We should be the best at it. You should pull thread as you read Scripture. You should pull it and go, oh, that makes me wonder about this. wonder if the Bible says anything else about that. And you go read about that and this and that and the other. And maybe you go read what some people have said. I'm on a thread of people that talk about um, Old Testament history and theology. And and, uh, they were asking about a particular author, one I like to read but I often disagree with. And the prevailing thought was, you should not read that person. They're a terrible theologian. And my response was simply this. I would absolutely read them. I love to read them. I don't agree with a lot of what they say. But how in the world are you ever going to grow if you don't read anybody that differs in opinion from you? Echo chambers are not good for Christians. Jesus came on the scene with the Sermon on the Mount to say, I'm about to break you out of your echo chamber. Will we pursue that? I want to to close with this. It's what I believe is one of the greatest movies of all times. Some of you in this room have never even heard of it. But it it was a movie that had a palpable effect on me as I left the theater. It was called The Sixth Sense. You may remember watching The Sixth Sense for the first time. I left that movie thinking, I need to go buy a ticket. I have to watch this movie all over again right now. It's a story about a child psychologist. His name is Malcolm Crowe, played by Bruce Willis. And Malcolm Crowe, the the beginning of the movie opens with a disgruntled former patient that is now a grown man. And he walks in and he says, you failed me. This man believed that he could see dead people and talk to dead people. And he said, you failed me. They've tormented me my entire life. And he shoots Bruce Willis and then shoots himself. And then the rest of the movie, it it pans from that moment after it being shot, it pans to the next moment where he has another student who comes in 
another child who cannot a student, but another client who comes in who's a child and says, I can see dead people and talk to them. And so he continues his career. And it goes shows different parts of Malcolm Crowe's life in which uh, his marriage is falling apart and his wife is mourning him and the disillusion of their marriage and they go to dinner, they don't talk to each other and she just finally gets up, pays the bill and leaves as if she's done with him. We watch this story unfold. Eventually he comes to the place in which he believes uh, that his student or client is telling the truth because he listens to a cassette of one of, I don't remember what it was, like a session and he actually hears another voice. Now, this is like extra biblical. I don't think this really happens, but it's a good movie, right? And he hears another voice, and he begins to realize, oh, I think they can. And so then he and, and this, this young child, Cole, he, he begins to help him deal with his struggles. And he says, so you can. You can speak to dead people. How can you use that for good? And the next section of the movie is about how they go and they rescue all these people from the by these stories that are told by these dead people. It's really you know crazy. But at this point in the movie, you're like, yeah, okay, it's over yet. Very end of the movie, we come to this pivotal moment in which we realize that Malcolm is actually dead. He was when he was shot by Vincent in the beginning of the movie. That's when he died, and his client is little young child has actually been speaking to him in the same way. And he has this magnificent reliving in these, in, with just a couple of minutes of the entire movie, and you realize that this new information has just reframed the entire movie. And I remember walking out of that movie thinking, I have to watch this again because this changes everything. See, that is the pursuit of truth within the life of the follower of Jesus. This is why deconstruction is not a bad word. Now, uh, what I said in the blog was that there's a lot more demolition going on than there is deconstruction in, 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 in a lot of celebrities. But deconstruction is a necessary part of pulling threads to unravel the things that we don't know so that we can know something better. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is why people who love Jesus love His Word and read it and struggle with it and argue about it and then come to a resolution that says, now it makes sense. This is the beauty of following Jesus, and this is what I want for us as we move forward. Psalm 37.5 says this. It says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at this place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and enlighten themselves in abundant peace. Let us be those people. And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount over these next few weeks and months, let His Word change us. Let's wrestle with it. Let's be willing to bring everything we've ever learned to the table, but let's hold it loosely in case He wants to show us something better. Then let it wash over us and change us because that's what it means to know Jesus. Praise Him.
Father. There are more truths in this world than there are people, it seems. To navigate the pursuit of truth feels at times impossible. But that's what you've called us to, and that's what Jesus was trying to reveal so many years ago and is still trying to reveal to us today. I pray that your word would not simply be interesting and something we listen to and and get a few ideas from, but instead it literally changes the way we see everything so that the world is viewed through the lens of Christ. Father, it does feel dangerous to pull threads. It feels dangerous to hold to old ideas loosely. God, I pray You'll give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Your Spirit is meant to show us what truth is and to lead us into that. And so we rest in in the work of the Spirit in our lives, knowing that we will not unravel Father, I pray that you would you would set boundaries around us so that in our exploration we don't we don't disappear into unhealthy places. Father, you give us the courage to pursue what you're really saying and doing, what you have been saying and what you have been doing. And I pray you would give us the courage to let go of falsely held ideas that we've had that were never true to begin with so that we can embrace something better. Let us have ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name we pray.